Good morning, everyone. Have you ever noticed how often we talk about, or at least we're always ready to talk about, what we love? Let's bow together in prayer. Father, as we look into your word, we invite you to speak now as only you can. We pray that you would speak to us in very intimate and personal ways, because this is the longing of your heart, and I think it's largely dependent on us being willing to hear. And so we just lay our life before you. We invite you to speak as only you can, in a way that invites us down the path, invites that which is important to you to be vitally important to us. And so we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Cal Ross was 19 years of age when, for the first time in his life, he was asked to teach a class. And when he went to the class, he was given a fairly small room, comparatively speaking, to the number of students he had. It was a fair number of students, and they were a fairly rambunctious bunch. And so he did his best, but they were, quite frankly, a little bit hard to control. And secretly, he wondered if they were really hearing anything he had to say. Actually, they were hearing him quite well. And in particular, one of them heard him exceptionally well. And even though this one particular student had been to classes like this all their life, they had never heard someone teach on this particular subject. And so Cal, despite those little bit of misgivings about whether they were listening, Cal continued to share the story of Jesus in Sunday school and 10-year-old Scott, who even though Scott had gone to another church and gone to church and gone to Sunday school all his life, had never heard the story of the biblical Christ. Was there a Cal-type person in your life? If so, aren't you glad that they loved Jesus and that they loved you enough to share the Jesus story with you, to share the good news of the gospel of grace and forgiveness with you? Have you ever noticed how often we talk about, or at least how we're always ready to talk about, what we love. Off and on, as Aaron said earlier, off and all through, all through this year, we're going to be dwelling on this idea of good news. This is one of the big ideas we want to dwell on this year. And so, for example, every day during the, day of the, during the 40 days of Lent, on our social media, you'll see another thing coming out about good news. We've been talking about it a lot already these first nine weeks of the year. And this morning we want to launch a little three-part series on the good news. And so today we're going to talk about good news what, next week good news why, 
And the week after that, good news, how? As we head into the Easter season. And you know, the scripture says that the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of people out there, a lot more than we might know or assume, that are deeply interested in having a relationship with God. It says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so we want to make sure that we are prepared for our moment. And I am of the firm belief, if we're open to that moment, that God brings those moments our way. We want to make absolutely sure that we are prepared to share the good news with people when that opportunity comes. And we want to do it in a way that I would probably describe it as organic, just, just natural. And I was trying to think of an image of that, and I, I, my hope that it would be as natural as going to your favorite coffee shop, whether it's, it's Tim Hortons or McDonald's or Starbucks, or I probably should have had a mystery cup over here of one of the little boutique shops here in town. Going to a coffee shop when we're actually able to go with our friends and sitting down with a friend or with a relative or with a neighbor and just as the conversation comes up really quite naturally, we want to be prepared to share the good news. We want to be prepared. So what is the mission? If you have your Bible or your device, turn with me to the book of Mark. Mark is the second historical biography of four into the life of Christ. It's actually the first three of what we call the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The one that was written first of the three. It's the shortest of the three. He really gets to the point quickly, and he does his work in 16 chapters. The other ones are a little bit larger, 28 and 24 uh, chapters of Scripture, of the synoptics. The book of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. And we see Jesus together with the people that he's going to invite on the journey with him, his leadership team, the people that are going to become his followers. And let's see what he says to them as he talks to them about the mission. After John was put in prison, so John, this is referring to John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into the Galilee. The Galilee is in the northern part of Israel. If you study the life of Christ in this ho- these historical biographies, you see that the majority of his ministry was in and around the Galilee, all around it. Jesus went into the Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me. Part of following Jesus. Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. A reference back to the good news. When we follow Jesus, one of the things that he wants us to be on mission about is that he calls us to be fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and followed him. And so Jesus says, 
and says to each one of us, based on who we are, and that's very important, based on who we are and how he created us to be and how he gifted us, and so it's going to look a little bit different in each person's life. That's certainly reflected if you look at the individuals that he's calling to join him on this mission. Every one of them was different. Every one of them went about it in a slightly different manner. Based on God, how God created us to be, God calls every one of us to proclaim the good news. Now, for a number of reasons, I don't know if I'd even call them reasons, for a number of reasons, maybe we could call them reasons, maybe even because we don't think it's our role, and I'm not sure why we would think that. Three different times in this passage, Jesus says that the heart of the mission is the proclaiming of the good news, that we are to be fishers of men. So why is it that we are reluctant at times to engage in the mission. I was trying to think about why that might be. I can think of a number of reasons. Let me just talk about this one. Some years ago, you'll be reminded if you're old enough, and it was more so in the States than here, but it was definitely here, and you even see some examples of this yet to this day. We used to put pictures of missing children on the back of milk cartons. And so they would say, if you have seen this missing child, call this phone number. And at first, this campaign had great success. It was quite striking. It got people's attention. But it quickly faded. Why would that happen? For something as important as missing children. Why would we become really complacent about something like that? And it's very simple. It's just three words. Not my kids. Not my kids. Now, I have two kids. And maybe you have kids. Maybe you're an aunt or an uncle. Maybe you have children that are special in your life. And in my experience, if the name of my two kids, Aaron or Sean, comes up, or the other two kids that we added to our family when they got married, so if the names of Aaron or Sean or James or Tabea, if their names come up, You have my undivided attention. If anything was to happen to one of those four kids, what wouldn't I do to help them? What wouldn't I lay aside to help them? So if we begin to think of it in these terms, you know why God wants us to be fishers of men? It's because he has kids that are lost that are outside the family of God, that desperately need our help, that are heading to a destiny that you wouldn't wish on anyone. And when we begin to see people like that, when we begin to look into the eyes of that person and know that that person matters to God, to use the old expression, lost people matter to God. We're much more inclined to say yes to this idea, this call from God on each believer's life to be a fisher of men, to share the good news. Now, again, it doesn't need to be some big program. It doesn't need to be this massive amount of information. And trust me, I've done all of those things in my life many times. 
It doesn't need to be some big program. It doesn't need to be some big set of things, this big, long, hour-long presentation that you memorize. But at the same time, some people operate under the false illusion. All they have to do is just be a nice person. And somehow, hopefully, by me being a nice person, Jesus, they'll connect the dots and they'll give their life to Christ. Now, it's important to be a nice person, but that falls short of the invitation, in fact, the command from Scripture to share the good news of Jesus that this text calls us to. And so when we look at the example of Jesus and the example of the disciples who did it again, as I said, in a variety of ways based on the giftedness from God, it becomes much more organic it becomes much more natural. And it's really based on three things. The first one I've referenced already a couple of times. Be yourself and use the gifts that God has put into your life. So what I mean by that, just a practical example, is oftentimes in the church, we operate under this idea, I have to be like the Apostle Paul. I have to rationally and analytically persuade and push this person or in a sense argue in a healthy way not in a wrong way into the kingdom and unless I'm built like the apostle Paul I'll leave it to people like that absolutely not the case if you're like Paul use that methodology but if you're more like Matthew very different approach And we see a variety of characters in Scripture that are used in a variety of ways. If you're like Dorcas, be more like Dorcas. Don't operate under the illusion that it's the pastor's job. If you have that, that means I've failed in my job. It's every bit as much your calling as it is mine. Be yourself and use the gifts that God has given you. Secondly, yeah, it's important to be relational. Very important. But third, be knowledgeable. Know how to share your story. Know how to share the basics of the gospel with someone. And that way it becomes as natural as sitting in your favorite coffee shop or sitting, if you want to use the image from the text, of just sitting on the lake in a boat, casting with your friend, and the conversation of relationship with Christ comes up. And you begin to walk them through graciously, naturally. And there is incredible need in our culture. If you have studied the culture at all, especially in the last five to 10 years, there have been seismic shifts in the culture of North America. A growing, exponentially growing indifference to the things of God. And a somewhat aggressive attitude towards the followers of Jesus where they're not just apathetic towards many of us now, they actually think we cause more harm than good. Some people live under this lie. We know that in the UK, And Europe is much more further down the path than we hear in North America. But in the UK, 49% of adults are what's called religious nuns. 
They might have had some smattering of something of God when they were young, but half of the adults in the UK have absolutely nothing to do with any thought of God or relationship with Christ or the church whatsoever. In Canada, we're at 24% on average. One of every four adults are what's called religious nuns. And interestingly enough, you know which province is the highest in all of Canada? The province of Alberta at 31%. Nearly one out of every three adults you come across are what would be classified as a religious nun. There is a yawning opportunity in our country for people that are desperately lost. And I think part of the reason is we have had it so good for so long, many people don't see the need. And this is often the case until the crisis comes in their life, and then they look and they see the things that they have, the foundations that they have been basing their life on are woefully inadequate to deal with the crisis they're going through. And so right now, in particular in this last year, there is increased opportunity like there's rarely been in the last few years. Significant opportunity to point people to Jesus. Because in Christ, there is a hope that there's nothing in this world that provides apart from Christ. And I understand that there is a growing open hostility I would call it a social pressure not to be a Christian in our culture, that it's becoming more intimidating all the time to talk to someone about a life with Christ. I get this. And I've done it many times in my life. I still find it hard. It still makes me nervous. So I understand if it makes you nervous. I get it. But I remind you of the context in which books like the book of Mark was written. The context in which Christianity spread at such a rate, it changed the world. It was launched, the early church was launched when it was, when the Roman, the pagan Roman Empire was in power. And there was huge pressure not to be a Christian then. There was actual persecution then. In North America, we face some social pressure right now, but not persecution, at least not yet. In Rome, you faced actual deprivation. Many times your freedom would be taken away. At times, many times, in fact, your life would be taken away. And yet Christianity spread at an exponential rate. Why was it that the mission of Mark chapter 1 in an openly hostile, persecuting culture, why did the message of Jesus transform the world at that point? Larry Hurtado, in writing about this, his, the title of his book is, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Because it could often cost you your life to follow Jesus then. Certainly, there's many parts of the world that's certainly still the case. There's people dying for Jesus around the world every day, all the time. I've met some of these people. I've stood there with people that have been beaten to within an inch of their life and kicked out of their home country. Not because they've done anything wrong, but simply because they're a follower of Jesus. What were the reasons that 
Hittado identified historically why the church grew at exponential rates. Well, certainly the Spirit of God was just poured out and people, um, they, were, they were seeing Christ at work in people's lives. And so this is at the heart of it. But as well, it was through an attractiveness of the lives of Christians. When they were filled with the Spirit, there was something demonstratively different about these people's lives. There was a consistency that the culture noticed. There was a love about them that was radical in nature. There was a humility that was appealing. And they gained a reputation for this. The pagan culture saw this. They were intellectually honest enough to say, there's something radically different about these people. And what they did is they used the model of Jesus and the model of the disciples and they would radically identify themselves with those around them, with the people that the the culture normally shunned. So they radically identified with people, but at the same time they were also radically different than those around them. Madeline Engel wrote this, and this just rocked me when I read this, just hit me hard, so just listen to this. She writes this, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe. I've been guilty of trying to do that in my life. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, not by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. You can read historically what these yearly Christians were like. They were known for several things. They were known for for rescuing abandoned children. The Romans had this habit when a child was born, if they didn't like what they saw, for whatever reason, they would just take that kid and throw it on the garbage dump that was burning perpetually. The Christians would come at night, rescue those children out of the garbage dump, and raise them as their own. They were known for an outrageous generosity. They were known for caring for the sick. When a plague would break out in a city, most of the city would vacate because they didn't want to catch the plague. The Christians that were there would stay in the midst of the plague and care for the sick. And then when the culture and the Roman culture in particular radically turned against them. They saw people who were willing to give up their freedom and their lives for Christ. And the pagan community began to connect the dots. There is something very different about these people. Something otherworldly about them. These were spirit-filled Christians operating in their spiritual gifts in a way that was deeply attractive. But they just weren't nice people because Hurtado identified the second key thing that the reason these people were coming to Christ because you couldn't openly do uh, Christianity in terms of big services and stuff like that like we're used to. The second way was through individual conversations. And it's good to be nice to people, but we also have to speak to them in a way that they will want to know more, not less. And have it fixated in our mind. This is not about winning some argument. It's not about crushing them. 
And so how I speak and the tone with which I speak can be just as important as what I say. And absolutely, at times, we are very direct and clear. We might need to correct wrong thinking. Many times, there's very wrong thinking where they'll be saying things about God where you can say, well, I don't believe in that kind of a God either. That usually shocks them when you say things like that. At times, we have to be much more gentle. But whether it's more direct or much more gentle, we're never mean, we're never nasty, we're never rude. And again, it takes courage to do this. It takes guts to do this. And when you share, you share the truth, just like Jesus did here in verse 15, where he says, I'm sharing the good news, the kingdom is near, repent and receive and believe the good news. That, and you don't have to use my exact words, it's the concepts that Jesus is saying, listen, every one of you is separated from holy God because of sinful choices we've made. We've all done it. We're all doing it. And because of this, we're hopelessly separated from God And there's nothing we can do about it. Nothing we can do to compensate or pay for it. And this is at the heart of why Jesus came, was to make this grace-filled opportunity, this grace-filled way on our behalf. And so we, we acknowledge our sin, that we're hopeless to deal with it. We ask him, based on his actions on the cross and through the resurrection, to forgive us for our sin. And then we make this radical step of surrender to the belief that he is uniquely and exclusively the only way to be saved. And I surrender my life as utterly to him. And he directs my life from that way forward. And it's every bit as important as receiving forgiveness for my sins. They don't go separately. And the Spirit of God we're told, convicts them of truth, points them to Jesus, and their life is changed by the Spirit of God. Not by me or by my words. He just uses you in the process. And then we've been strategically placed to present Christ. God has placed you where you are. It's not an accident. It's not by luck. There's no such thing as luck. God has placed you where you are, where you live, where you work, where you go to school, the gym that you're a member at that they just opened up here in the last couple of weeks. God has put you there. And so a great question to ask in prayer. We just finished a series of six weeks on prayer. God, why have you put me where you've put me? What do you have for me here? And part of that is to be fishers of men. And so, Lord, give me opportunities. Point me to the people you want me to be in that kind of relationship with. And believe me, he will when we're willing. This has consistently been my experience. It's kind of like, I'm not a big fisherman. I've done enough of it just to be dangerous. Hooked a few people, stuff like that. Um, It's like when you're casting and fishing. You don't just cast in a haphazard manner. You consider where the fish are. You look at the environment, you study. 
you, you consider the time of day. There's times of day when they're much more prone to be biting. So the timing of what you do is very important. You consider the depth of the water, the type of food that they're typically eating so you can bait your hook appropriately. And so to be fishers of men where we are, we cast on purpose. And we cast again and again and again. As well, there's the scars and the stuff and the wounds in life that you bear. Don't waste those. Think of those in the context of personal evangelism. Because there may be hands around you that only you can hold. There may be conversations that you can have where you don't understand perfectly because we never, ever understand perfectly what that person's going through, even if we've gone through the same circumstances. But because of your experience, you understand better than most. There's people around you that you can comfort. And then when it's appropriate, and that's that timing thing, you have a conversation where the dots get connected, where you might start as simply as something like this. God, the God I know is full of generosity and love. And I've been made by Christ to reflect him. And if you'd permit me, I'd love to, I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. And so it's just a gentle approach, an open approach. Here's what I know about you. I know that the reason you are in relationship with Christ today is more than likely because someone or another of a number of someones was a fisher of men in your life. People that you're aware of or probably a number of people you're not even aware of and won't know about until you get to heaven. But there were people in your life that God strategically placed in and around your life that pointed you to Jesus. And God wants to do the same thing through you. You know that occasionally Cal Ross and I still talk. He's tracked with me over the years. He's lived all over the world in different places. He actually lives in Calgary now. And Cal is not the person that actually led me to faith in Christ. It's actually my mom. But he was the very first person, even though I'd gone to church all my life at another church, gone to Sunday school all my life, he was the very first person when I was 10 years of age that shared the good news of Jesus with me. Do you think it gives Cal some measure of joy to know that a few months, six months or so after he started talking to me about Jesus, that there was a time when I bowed the knee to Jesus and surrendered my life to him. Do you think that gives him joy? To know that a few years after that, I married Debbie, who knew Christ as well. That Debbie and I, both our children, both of their spouses are believers. That over the years, God has used Scott to lead a number of people to faith in Christ. I'm guessing 
that that has brought some measure of joy into Cal's life. So I want to give you some homework. And the homework means that you'll take a piece of paper and a pen, and on, on the paper, I want you to put five boxes. And you can put a little title at the top of each of these five boxes. Box number one is family. Box number two is neighbors. Box number three is friends. Box number four is coworkers. And box number five is the mystery box. These are just unexpected people that God brings across your path. And you know what? It happens when we're open to this. I had it happen on Friday. Just unexpected. Someone I've never met before come across my path. And they asked a question. And, you know, it just, it just made me nervous for just a second. But then I said, no, I'm going to share with this woman. And I got a chance. And I believe when we're open to this, God uses that openness. I'd like you to take those five boxes to pray over them very specifically and say, God, is there a someone or a number of someone's names you want me to write in one of those boxes? And then begin to pray for that person by name. And say, God, how do you want to use me to do something or to say something in their life to point them to Christ. And then just pray a prayer of, say, of availability. I'm available to this. I am willing to be a fisher of men in their life. And you can fill in the mystery box however you want, God. Have you ever noticed how often we talk about or that we're always ready to talk about what we love.